You're listening to Out of the Box, a place for marketers to get inspired, get going, and break out of the box. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Jess Overton. You're listening to Out of the Box, the marketing podcast exploring out-of-the-box approaches to marketing and growth. Today, I'm joined by Andy Carvel, partner and co-founder of mobile marketing agency Feature. Andy, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me on the show, Jess. It's a pleasure. So, you know, it'd be great if we if we start with a little uh, a little snapshot or a thumbnail of of your experience in marketing. I know you've had uh, you've got over twenty years of experience. So, give us a little bit of a little bit of background. Uh, yeah, sure, be happy to. Um, so, yeah, I've got twenty years experience in mobile. Uh, not all of it in marketing, however. Like I, I started out actually as a developer. Um, my uh, going back even further, my my father was uh, one of the first generation of computer programmers. So he was, uh, I think, very keen to make sure that uh, my brother and, uh, and I got to learn how to program computers from a pretty early age. So I grew up with the, in the home computing age in the UK. Um, and I was uh, always always keen to make games, actually. So as I was making games, um, you know, from, from, my, from my early years, like through to when I actually went to university, studied computer science, um, so I could make better games. Um, and then uh, my first job in the industry was... Uh, with Nokia, um, who were at the time very much the uh, the dominant player in the mobile space, um, and they were just they'd had a lot of success with one of their phones, which had a, a game on it. Like that, that game was Snake, uh, which most people have heard of, um, probably most people have played. Um, and inspired by how popular that that game was and how much they saw people actually using that um, in their phones, they. Uh, they started a games team in uh, in the UK, where I'm from, um, an R in one of their R&D facilities. So uh, I joined that team um, and worked on some very early mobile games, kind of before we even called them mobile games. <laughs> Just uh, um, yeah, I was I was developing video games for um, for mobile phones. I, I did a game called uh, Space Impact, which was one of the very early arcade space shooting games on on a phone. Uh, it was a lot of fun, um, and I was just very inspired by not just you know the, the possibilities to do games on phones, but just these wonderful pieces of hardware. You know, like um, when I joined Nokia, I, I didn't even have a phone, and I, I got one you know as part of my job. But uh, by the time I left a couple of years later and, and joined a mobile games company, you know there were such things as mobile games companies, and everybody had a mobile phone, and so just kind of been riding that wave for the last for the next 20 years i'm still still super excited about mobile um, but after 10 years in the games industry i i kind of took a bit of a change of direction i, I took a year out went traveling around the world um, went to business school for a year when i got back uh, got my mba uh, where i specialized in marketing and, and found the marketing topics particularly interesting i thought i would go back into the games industry but ended up at um uh, uh coming over to berlin to to do a uh an internship with uh, SponsorPay, who are now called Fiber, um, and uh, yeah, that was fun. But uh, didn't really want to stay in ad tech, but uh, definitely wanted to stay in Berlin. And I saw that SoundCloud were hiring. That's that's how I joined SoundCloud as uh, originally as a product marketing manager, um, and later uh, was running a couple of different teams there over the four and a half years that I ended up staying there. All with all focused on mobile and and all very much kind of at the intersection of, of product and technology and, and marketing, which I guess makes sense for my experience. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit then how Feature came came to be and, and who your customers are. 
Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, I was at SoundCloud for about four and a half years. Um, I think most recently, before I left, I was I was running, built out a retention team, which is like a, a cross-functional team focused on user retention. Um, and I was working in that team. Uh, during that time, uh, a guy called Moritz joined joined the growth team of Growth Org at, at SoundCloud. Uh, Moritz Dan, he's now my co-founder. Uh, Moritz and I got on really well. We shared a lot of the same passion for growth and data and you know, just getting shit done, fast experimentation. Um, and we learned a lot. You know, SoundCloud was a fantastic place to really uh, you know, flex our, our growth muscles there and, and really develop some, some great um, experience. Um, we loved working there. We loved, loved working on the stuff that we were doing. But we sometimes got a bit frustrated with the fact that we couldn't move even faster and do even more. And so it was um, basically out of that slight frustration and just kind of desire to go and do something new and, and, and work across like multiple different categories that we set up feature. Um, so we both left SoundCloud. We, we set up a mobile growth um, organization, uh, mobile growth consultancy um, called Feature. Uh, and um, yeah, that's what we're doing still today. Five years later, we've uh, grown it to... Uh, about 110 employees. Uh, we're still based in Berlin, but we just opened a New York office as well. Congratulations. So you said that one of the things that was that sort of quote unquote bothered you at SoundCloud was that you were you were limited by vertical. Can you tell me a little bit about what sorts of verticals you work in today? Yeah, absolutely. So we're working across a pretty broad range of verticals today. Uh, we're working with folks like Headspace in the sort of health and happiness category. Uh, a bunch of fitness apps, um, more utility apps like um, like we, we we do ASO for a bunch of apps um, in the Adobe portfolio. So for, uh, things like um, Adobe Scan, uh, and Lightroom, and things like this. So sort of slightly more kind of um, functional apps. Uh, we work with content platforms. SoundCloud is actually a customer uh, of ours now, so we're we're back working with SoundCloud in a different capacity. Um, and we've also worked with uh, with other music services like Deezer and Spotify in the past as well. Um, so we, we really try to work across as many verticals as possible to see, um, you know, where we can kind of apply the same kind of processes that work, you know, across verticals and, and also to learn, you know, where we need to adjust the playbook. You know, we've, we've recently started working with some fintech apps, um, folks like Tally. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, we... I think we actively go after pretty much like every like new vertical um, w that, that we can get our hands on, really, because it's it's always interesting to see um, what works and what doesn't, and and then you know that brings more knowledge and experience back into our major playbook on you know just how do we do things better across every vertical. So I want to double click on that a little bit because I think during your time at SoundCloud, you developed what you called the mobile growth stack. Mm -hmm. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about why you made the framework and and what the nitty gritty of it really is? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the mobile growth stack uh, is essentially what I would call a, a a one page cheat sheet for mobile marketers or mobile growth professionals um, looking to develop a, a mobile growth strategy for an for an app. Um, so. How did it come about? It was like essentially scratching my own itch, I guess. Um, I was I was at SoundCloud. I realized that probably there were not too many people there at the time who really understood mobile. Um, we had obviously like um, mobile teams, iOS and Android, relatively small teams at the point when I joined. Um, 
but relatively few other people in in the company really understood the dynamics of mobiles. I guess partially why they hired me, you know, to help you know evangelize that and and help them to make that transition from being web first to mobile first. Um, and the mobile growth stack initially was just a sort of a one slide in a presentation that I put together for senior management, um, just kind of outlining some of the key levers for growth um, as I saw them, uh, the opportunities that that were available to SoundCloud. Um, and you know that, that went down well with senior management. But around that same time, I was teaching a, a mobile business 101 course at General Assembly. And I, I sort of made a slightly adapted version for that course. And I saw that actually that was the most popular slide in my whole kind of uh, two-hour course. So uh, from that kind of signal from the audience, I, I thought, okay, maybe, maybe there's something here which is more you know, it's, it's interesting beyond just SoundCloud. So I developed it a bit further. Um, and uh, yeah, just like long story short, like the, 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 the framework really kind of seemed to resonate well with, um, you know, with the audience of app developers like across the world. Um, you know, we've seen folks like Gram Games, Walmart, Google um, have all kind of adop- adopted this framework and, and used it in, in, in their own, you know, internal uh, processes at, at times, which is really great to see. Um, and uh, just for those who maybe haven't come across the framework before, I'll just brief- briefly describe it. Um, essentially, it's a kind of a grid um, with a bunch of different cells in it. Sort of, it's organized by it's got like a few main layers to it. So acquisition, engagement, and retention, and monetization being like the, the core layers, and then it's kind of underpinned by analytics and tech um, being kind of supporting functions, which um, which enable uh, activities to to happen in in those those layers that I just just mentioned. Um, And essentially every cell in this kind of grid is a different activity which may or may not be useful to a mobile marketer when trying to kind of like move the needle uh, in that layer. So in the acquisition layer, it's stuff like, you know, performance marketing or PR or uh, app store optimization. You know, these these would be individual cells. And so what it basically ends up with is like a, a pretty big matrix of like hopefully capturing all of the major kind of opportunities in the problem space of like, how do I grow an app? And uh, I think one of the, one of the misconceptions about the framework is that you need to do all of these things in order to succeed. Um, It's actually the opposite. It's like, you know, strategy is always about making trade-offs and it's always about choosing to prioritize or focus on certain things uh, to the detriment of others. So the, the message from from the framework is not like, hey, look, you need to do everything here, but rather you can use this as a kind of a guide to like the problem space um, and your you know potential solution space, um, and then figure out like which of these activities is going to be most valuable in your business at your particular stage. Um, yeah, and we um, at a feature, yeah, we can help people to apply that stack and, and help them to kind of go through that process. Yeah. Well, certainly, I think it's a very, very comprehensive document. I, I had the chance to go over it, and I would definitely recommend to any mobile marketer who's looking to uh, to really get a concise uh, playbook to, to, to check it out, because it, it really is very informative. I think one of the things that that I see across all of the the sort of the cells that uh, uh, that you could possibly do, and something that you've brought up on uh, on a number of occasions, is uh, uh, is differentiating UX for different user groups. So mm-hmm. in, in, in quotes, personalization. Um, and I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, great. 
that one of the things that I've certainly focused on uh, in my work and something that I know that you've talked a lot about is, uh, uh, is improving retention at the activation stage of an app. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering when, when a good time for app developers to start personalizing really is. Should they be starting at the, at, right at the beginning of the onboarding flow or is personalization something that should start later? Uh, as early as possible would be my my guidance there. You know, like the more that you can personalize, I'm, I'm going to use personalize in, in slightly inverted commas because, um, you know, it could be as simple as having two different variants of your experience, you know, two different segmentations. Uh, it could be super broad. Um, but if you're able to get like, you know, incremental uplift on your, I don't know, onboarding completion rate or activation rate by by splitting that experience at some point, in that first session, for example, then you absolutely should do it. You know, if you like always be guided by the data and always see like if, you, if you're getting incremental uplift, um, but uh, you know, if, if you're able to provide an experience which is resonating with more of your overall new user base um, by offer, offering a differentiated experience, then, then my view is you should absolutely try to do that. Um, so what does that mean in practice? Like, well, it could be as simple as um, you know, looking at where the user is in the world and offering a slightly different experience based on their location. You know, in, in very simple terms, that would be things like just offering you know a localized version of the app. If someone's running it from Germany, or you know, or if they've got German language selected, um, you know, this would be this would be an example of what I'm talking about. It's not generally considered to be a growth tactic, but it def- definitely will improve your activation rates if you're able to offer mm-hmm. your app in local language. But it could also be things like looking at what um, acquisition channel did this uh, did this user come in on? You know, did they come in from Facebook, or uh, did they organically browse in the App Store and find you? Um, you know, or or have they come from uh, from Iron Source, for example? And uh, you know, you yeah. can offer you you can use that to you know to to differentiate your experience too, particularly if you know that you're running certain types of campaigns on on different networks, or you know that you're pushing maybe different value propositions, you know, you could even start to, to differentiate based on the campaign or creative that they came in on. I know that's getting more difficult with, um, with, um, with the iOS 14 changes, but mm-hmm. uh, still you can do it on, on, on Google and, and to, to some more limited extent uh, still possible on, on iOS. But um, I guess my overall theme here would be to try to align as far as possible the user experience and user expectations from the moment that they first interact with your brand, which is usually in an advert, um, through the app stores, uh, you know, so the iOS app store, or Google Play store, if, if they're coming that, that way, then, you know, most, most folks will see the, 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 uh, the store listing. You need to be consistent there um, and make sure you're not confounding expectations that have already been set in the advert. And then, of course, very importantly, in the first session of the app, to start delivering on those those promises and and reinforcing, you know, the, the value prop um, to, to provide a consistent story for the user. You know, like people generally will drop out if they start to feel that that the app is not for them or that they've been missold something in an advert. You know, even, and this, this could be way before you're even asking them for money. They, they, they might churn. Right. Do you have a do you have an example of uh, of somebody who does this particularly well, or on the flip side, somebody who you think uh, uh, could use a little improvement? 
Uh, I mean, so I can give a controversial example of uh, a company which has made a lot of money from from you know from providing a segmented experience, and that would be Tinder. Um, so Tinder's um, pro accounts they 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 differentiate on age. So they they get your age, I think, from Facebook login, or or they're asking that very very early in the in the uh, the sign up process. And uh, the over 30s, um, if they want a pro account, they have to pay double what uh, an, an under 30 pays. So this is just, um, you know, the the price differentiation and, and segmentation which Tinder chose to apply. Now, they recently, not even that recently, actually, it was a while back, but they, they lost a class action, class action lawsuit around this in California. Um, and they were forced to actually stop doing this. Uh, but they... they but only as far as I know, they only stopped doing it in California, and they uh, they managed to settle the whole lawsuit with uh, just paying out in super likes, which seems like a pretty good deal for Tinder because I think they probably made hundreds of millions of uh, additional uh, subscription dollars off of off of that. So I'd say that's that's one of the most high profile and and controversial examples of offering a differentiated experience and even a differentiated price point. Uh, but I can tell you that many other apps are doing it. Um, not necessarily yeah. male versus female, but you know, do, offering different prices for different acquisition sources or you know other other um, segmentation variables. So that brings up an interesting question as well, which is how do you choose which segmentation variable to start working on? You go male or female? Do you go ge- geography? Where? How, how do you how do you choose to get going? That's a great question, and I think that that also really. Um, you know, comes back to understanding your your target market and your understanding your users, um, and you know, doing that kind of uh, qual research, I guess, and and just sort of do, trying, you know, taking the time to like properly understand what are your biggest segments of users. Now, you can you can do that also to some extent in a quantitative way um, by looking at behavioral data, or maybe your acquisition data tells you some things. You can get some, you know, usually demographic data and things, um, at least at a sort of aggregated level uh, from from some of your acquisition partners. Um, But like, you know, to to go super quantitative in terms of behavioral segmentations, you're probably already thinking about like doing that later in, in the life cycle when the user's already using the app, right? So if you want to Think about trying to do some segmentation super early on. Um, I would really recommend doing some analysis or research um, to to really understand like who your users are and to try to at least get a feel for like what are going to be some meaningful differences between different groups of users that that, that are coming in to use the app. Sometimes it's as simple as they're coming in for different use cases, um, and uh, you know if you have a feel for what those segmentations might be, then I would really recommend actually asking users in the app to uh, like, can be just like a simple one question survey, for example. We, we do this a lot with, with customers using in-app messages um, to help help our customers being like app publishers to better understand mm-hmm. the users who are coming in and understand what why they've downloaded the app. And you know what, like the simple answer is just to ask them. Um, if you ask the user, hey, look, you know, what, what, why did you download Headspace, for example, right? Like they're one of our customers. We, we've run surveys like this. Uh, now I think they've built it right into their, their product onboarding. Um, so they ask the user, hey, you're here to, you know, reduce anxiety or to feel happier or to sleep better. You know, these are all valid reasons to, to meditate and to use Headspace. Um, 
And by asking that question during the onboarding process, you've immediately got a, a piece of data which you can use to immediately start personalizing and segmenting the user base. And you also get a feel for how big those segments are. You might find that nobody is selecting sleep better, for example. It's not the case for Headspace. It's a very common use case. But you, know, you might see that actually some of your assumptions are wrong. So um, asking users and talking to users is also a great way to clarify whether you're on the right track with your segmentation strategy. I'm interested a little bit in how, how that conversation went with some of your clients. You don't have to get into specifics, but it seems such an obvious and simple solution to just ask the users, but it seems to be one that really doesn't, it isn't the default. How does that conversation go? Yeah, it's, it's crazy, really. I think, you know, I think it's just a, maybe a symptom of the fact that, you know, we're working in quite a techie space all in all. And so, you know, a lot of, techie VC funded companies that are kind of, you know, tech first. Um, it's not always the first thing that, you know, techie founders, particularly, or, you know, techie like founding teams, they don't default to like thinking about actually going and talking to users. They're like, they're maybe focused on building a really cool technical solution to a problem, which maybe you know, they assume or know exists and they validate it by running some ads and getting some users in and they can see the numbers going up. You know, this is all, great and quantitative data is super important. I'm definitely not arguing against quant, but um, I do do feel that qual research and just just talking to users, it's really that simple, you know, is, is often overlooked, um, even in fairly late stage companies, you know, like they, they it's definitely not the default often. I, I honestly don't know why, because um, it seems very simple. But what I can say is like, you know, one of the best things that my boss at SoundCloud, when I first joined, what he did, he made me actually work, um, like sit and work customer support, like basically shadowing a customer support person for for uh, an afternoon just to see what real users were, were writing in and complaining about. I, I really, really can recommend this. It's, it's very eye-opening just to just get a feel for, you know, what's important to users, like just look at customer support emails for a day. Um, and secondly, um, you know, I was actually tasked in my first week or two with um, actually speaking to maybe 10, 12 users. I can't remember how many I spoke to in the end, but basically we just like pulled a, like a database list of, of users who had some certain characteristics. I then like reached out to them by email and said, hey, would you mind getting on the phone and having a chat? Uh, I just started at SoundCloud. I'd like to understand, you know, X and Y better. Um, and I had, you know, half a dozen, you know, well, more than half a dozen, I think, phone calls with real people. <laughs> and uh, that was such a great onboarding to, to doing marketing at SoundCloud, you know, because very from the get-go, I was really had such a richer understanding of, of, of these, you know, the use cases and the users and the pain points, um, as well as, I think, a lot more kind of care and empathy for actually being able to, you know, not just consider all of these, you know, millions of users to be just numbers, but actually like, to understand that they're, uh, you know, just on a basic level that they're real people and with, with, you know, real emotions. And uh, that's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm rambling now, but it, uh, I would highly recommend. I love that strategy of talking to users, getting out, and even if it's, if it's phone calls, if it's uh, in-app, whatever, asking users is, it, it seems the obvious choice, and yet so few do it. So definitely a great, great tip. 
I want to loop back a little bit to uh, to what you were talking about on Tinder, because mm-hmm. it occurs to me that with apps that have uh, uh, primarily ad based monetization strategies versus those who have in app purchase or app subscription business models, there's likely mm-hmm. to be a, a relatively different onboarding flow. Can you talk to me a little bit about how the business model affects a segmented UX strategy? Uh, yeah, so let's let's think about that, right? So if if a if a uh, if an app is essentially monetizing through you know a, an attention based model, then first of all, you want as many people to to be in in a situation where they can experience and, and view ads, like you know pretty much right from the get go. Uh, and you want to maybe bring them through the onboarding relatively quickly. Uh, you certainly don't want to put any sort of hard blockers in the way. You might actually want to think about not even, uh, this is a controversial one, but you, you, you might want to think about like not, not putting a registration wall even in the way. Um, you might have a, like a more of a soft registration process where people can sign up, but it's more of an optional thing rather than like a hard registration wall. You know, you want, you want to, you want to get ad impressions basically, right? Um, mm-hmm. Versus like if you're selling subscriptions and if that's your, your primary model and the one that you're putting a big bet on subscription revenue, which, which a lot of folks are putting a big bet on this these days, um, then you know, your priorities change a little bit in terms of the, the experience because you, you really want to get people into a free trial um, if you're doing a trial, maybe it's even just like, you know, you pay or you go, but you, you, it kind of, it favors a, a, a tougher approach and, and hitting people with, with paywalls early and often, and, and possibly even a hard paywall with, with no option to, to proceed without a free trial. You know, you, you would never consider that if you're trying to monetize through ads because, you know, you, you want at least the ad revenue, um, even if you're selling subscriptions on top. But if it's a pure subscription play, um, then yeah, we, what we see is that it's you're probably most you're probably going to get the most people into subscriptions if you hit them with a paywall that's, that they can't pass without at least signing up for a trial. You're going to have a huge dropout right there, um, but at least the, you'll you'll get more people signing up for a trial the moment they've just installed than than you will later. So probably that's you know you hit them with a hard paywall maybe right after some some basic product onboarding. Gotcha. And one of the things that you you, you said there was uh, uh, as more and more people are betting on a subscription revenue model. Mm-hmm. Is that a trend that you're seeing grow? And if so, why do you think that is? Uh, yes. Yeah, we definitely see almost every category outside of games is either, either they already have an existing subscription model, which is doing pretty well for them or they are experimenting with and launching subscription uh, so yeah, subscription services because, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's recurring revenue. You know, it's, uh, it's nice to have. Um, and it generally does pay a lot better than, you know, than either trying to sort of constantly drip feed in-app purchases. And, and you know, obviously games being, games is the big exception. Games has managed pretty well to sort of be, in some cases, insanely profitable by monetizing essentially five percent of the audience. You know, with with you know the whales with um, who are going to spend possibly even hundreds of, of, of dollars on on in app purchases. You know, making re- very regular purchases of you know coins and, and upgrades and things. Um, games still hasn't really, I think, you know, 
cracked subscription model that we've seen some attempts with kind of all you can eat game subscription services and things, but mm-hmm. um, doesn't seem to have really replaced the model. But every other category is 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 trying to do subscriptions. And and yeah, I mean, it's um, I think it makes a lot of sense, you know, from a business perspective, you know, everyone likes recurring revenue, first of all. Secondly, Apple and Google have made the subscription ecosystem pretty attractive and pretty relatively low friction for developers. I'm definitely not going to say no friction. Um, You know, obviously there's still a fair bit of work to implement subscriptions properly in your app, but there are also third-party tools uh, out there in this uh, platforms like Revenue Cat and Purchasely and and others, which take away some of that complexity from the the developer and and make it a little bit more plug and play. Um, And yeah, I think it's also attractive for the business because it's predictable revenue. It's not just that it's recurring, but like it's much easier to start to estimate LTV of a user when you know you're billing them on a monthly basis or whatever, rather than trying to guess when they're next going to purchase or or you know click on an ad or something like this. So yeah, but right. we do see some some hybrid models as well, where like I've I've seen seen some success. I think as there's an interior design app called Planner Five D. Um, which uh, they have a subscription, they have like you know like a like a pro plan, but then they also have a few in-app purchases as well for various bits and pieces. You can you can buy like an extended catalog with a one-off purchase and um, you know a couple of other bits. And I think I, I know I've actually I, I'm not sure about this, but I think they have ads in there as well, and you can pay to disable the ads. Um, yeah. Anyway. Uh, so they've gone the for po- a, a much more hybrid model. Yeah. I mean, we definitely see folks who have, you know, in-app purchases, subscriptions, and ad, ad monetization, you know, and, and are trying to make all of those work. But um, most folks are just betting on subscription. Right. Gotcha. Uh, I, I know you've talked a lot in, uh, uh, in, in public, uh, I guess, about retention strategies and, uh, and how you keep users coming back. As you mentioned, recurring revenue certainly as as a subscription is much more as a much more uh, uh, a much shorter line to draw between subscription and recurring revenue as opposed to the to the ad based model and retention. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. how how the best practices are different in terms of preserving customer engagement and retention in a subscription model rather than a uh, uh, rather than an ad based model, given that subscription is great until you know, if somebody realizes they're not they're not getting any value from the app, or they're not using the app, then of course they're going to cancel, right? They're going to churn out. Yeah, uh, this is this is this is an interesting point, an interesting topic, actually. Um, you know, I I have an opinion on that, which is that you know, actually, your approach shouldn't vary that much, actually, depending on whether they're in a subscription or it's an ad based model. You know, either way, um, I firmly believe that. You know, longer term, you're going to win by providing a great experience to your users, uh, providing value on an ongoing basis, letting them know and reminding them about that value. You know, by you know suggesting new content or, in other ways, bringing them back with re- relevant, timely, um, you know, messaging which is which is on point and and hopefully personalized, um, and providing a you know a great experience within the app whenever the user does come back, whatever that cadence is. Um, and that, you know, whatever the cadence of their subscription is, if they're on a subscription, they should be coming back and, and appreciating the value of your app, you know, often enough that they don't feel like, oh, okay, this is a waste of time. I'm going to cancel it. Right. And that, 
should be more or less the same set of mechanics that you're employing in terms of, you know, building an engaging product, having regular content refreshes or live ops or whatever it is, um, you know, doing great lifecycle marketing and, and retention marketing on an ongoing basis. All of those things shouldn't really matter what what um, subscription, uh, what monetization model you're on. Um, however, there is a school of thought, of course, and relatively profitable one, which just says, like, let's let sleeping dogs lie. If you see that a user is, you know, is happily renewing or, you know, that their subscription keeps renewing on an ongoing basis, even though you haven't seen them in the app for six months, um, you know, you can just be like, well, okay, we're not going to send them any emails. We're not going to, you know, we'll put them in the quiet track, you know, and this is, this is how gym memberships work. You know, the, the gym doesn't call you up every five minutes to say, hey, we haven't seen you in a while. Like, you want to come and get on the exercise bike? Like, no, they're very happy to sell way more subscriptions than they could fit people in a physical gym. Um, and that's the whole model, you know, but um, I don't think it's super sustainable. I don't think it's very ethical, frankly, and, uh, you know, for, for, for apps to do this. Um, but I, I totally see it can work. Um, I think I, I was pleased to see that Netflix actually took, took a, a strong position on this. They actually will auto cancel your Netflix subscription if they see that you've been dormant for some period of time. I don't, can't remember what the, the period is, but, you know, they, they, they're definitely not just going to let you pay for it forever. Um, right. Uh, I do think there are a couple of things which you can do. Additionally, uh, when there's a subscription model in place, and that's to let people know when they're coming up for uh, a period where, like, for example, if you if you need to, um, you know, take uh, new payment details forever, for, for example, uh, I know that Apple and Google generally, generally handle this anyway, but there, there are some exceptions where folks are paying for the subscription maybe outside of the... Um, the, the OS framework, uh, and I think there'll be more examples of that in the future, uh, in which case, you know, you might see that their credit cards no longer valid and you could actually get in touch with them to let them know that their subscription's coming up and they need to update their payment details, things like that, to kind of re reduce what we would call involuntary churn, which is where they're, they're, they're churning on a, a technicality. Um, yeah. Right. Would you recommend leveraging that moment to, to reinforce the... Uh, uh, the the selling point, the USP of the app, or, or, or do you think that's maybe a little bit aggressive? Uh, I don't see any reason not to be aggressive at the point where, um, you know, you're trying to close a renewal or, you know, or to, to, to reduce churn. I think it's always good to remind people why they're there. Um, I just think that that has to be also backed up in the product experience. You know, if they've, if you've not been delivering that experience for the whole subscription period, then, then restating a, a promise that you're not keeping is is going to have the opposite effect. But uh, but yeah, I mean, if, if the app's delivering what what you say it does, then absolutely remind them like of that value. Yeah. Great. Well, I think that this is as great a place to uh, to end as any, Andy. I think we've covered a lot of great great information, a lot of practical tips uh, for app marketers out there, and 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 for product marketers as well. I think uh, you really covered a. Uh, a vast range of, uh, of topics there. I'd like to wrap up by asking you the question I ask every one of my guests, and that's to tell me about a, a really innovative, memorable, or out-of-the-box marketing campaign that you've seen recently. Sure. Um, yeah, so I had to think about this one, and uh, it's not actually that recent, I, I, so I do apologize. I don't have a 
super recent example that's really stood out, but one that really sticks in my mind, which I think was a, a really great example of of innovative marketing, was uh, a campaign which Burger King ran, I think actually already a few years ago, um, where they did like a location-based um, campaign, in, certainly in, in certain cities, certain geos, whereby um, they would ping people with a push notification if they saw that they were about to, uh, they, they were within like 100 meters of a, of a McDonald's store, um, uh, giving them a super, super discounted offer on a Whopper and directions to uh, the nearest Burger King's uh, restaurant. So um, basically really hijacking uh, users who are maybe right on their way to go pick up a Big Mac and, and offering them like, I think like a, 99 cent whopper or something like this some some insanely good deal and uh i mean privacy privacy questions aside i think uh, you know i think that those kind of campaigns are going to be pretty difficult to run in the future but uh, uh possibly rightly so but uh i still thought it was uh, a very cheeky and um and very successful campaign for them actually that's a great one i really like that uh, well andy thank you very very much for joining us it's been an absolute pleasure yeah, thank you so much. Um, really appreciate it. Thank you.